Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? Welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. On this episode, I interviewed James McGrath. He wrote the book, The A to Z of the New Testament, Things Experts Know That Everyone Else Should Too. This is a great book. Please pick it up. It's so good. If you're someone who has always had questions about the Bible and the New Testament, but you need a very condensed, easy read that just kind of gives you the answers point blank, this is the book for you. And I had a great time talking to James about what does salvation mean? What does it mean to be saved? Why doesn't Paul talk about the virgin birth? What is the virgin birth? We get into all of that and more. I think you're going to love this episode. And of course, we'd love your feedback on what you thought. You can send me an email or shoot me a DM on Instagram. And of course, friends, thank you so much for supporting the show. If you want to support the work that we're doing, you can donate. We are a nonprofit holding space for thousands of people as they find better paths forward in their faith. And we also do a lot of work in other mediums. We do Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. So sharing this content helps people find the work that we do. It helps them to not be alone. So thank you so much for your support. It means the world. Without further ado, here is my interview with James. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all soon. Hey, this is Jared McCrory in Montgomery, Alabama, and I am a TNE donor and so thankful to be able to give a little bit to help make this work possible. I've been listening to the TNE podcast for a few months and it had become a regular for me with the other great podcasts I listened to to help me with my own evolving faith journey and just have been so thankful for the amazing work that Tim does for the diversity of voices that he brings on to the podcast that I've just found so helpful for my journey. And I want others to be able to find the same thing. This work is so important and is needed now more than ever in the craziness that we're all living in. So keep it up. Glad to be a small part of the team. I hope others will join in giving so this work can continue. Take care. Well, Dr. James McGrath, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. You wrote a great book, The A to Z of the New Testament, Things Experts Know That Everyone Else Should Too. I am not, I don't read as often as people think I do. I get messages, how do you read so much? And I go, oh, you should see the stack of books that I'm still trying to get through. And I told myself, you know, I want to really start this book and get through as much as I can. And I sat down one time and read 60 pages, which for me is very impressive. So your book is really engaging. I found it so helpful for folks like me who have a lot of questions about the Bible and how we understand it, but also don't understand words like ontological. So you do a great job of not using words like that and using words that I can understand and explaining things in really engaging ways. So thank you for making time. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I'm glad we actually got to meet in person at Theology Beer Camp. You know, that was a lot of fun. And yeah, I, it, this was a fun book to write, but it's been really delightful just hearing how people have responded to it and the people have actually enjoyed reading it. Um, I don't, I have a quirky sense of humor and you always wonder, you know, okay, are people going to like it or not? You know? 
Yeah, I mean, that is fair. I, I would agree. You definitely have a quirky sense of humor. I do want to ask why this book? I mean, you're an academic. You're you're pretty well known in your circles. You do a lot of work in the academic field. And, you know, like God coming in the form of Jesus, you lowered yourself to standards of like my standard, you know, to write a book. So <laughs> I'm just kind of curious, like, like, what was the the motivation for you to write a book like this for folks like me? Yeah, I'm honored by the comparison. I wish I could say, wow, what occurred to me was I'm going to try and be like Jesus by writing this book. But that wasn't actually in my mind, sort of an incarnational model. But I do care about, you know, I think that, you know, there are a lot of people in general, but a lot of Christians, you know, a lot of people for whom the New Testament is important. They're interested. They want to understand things. And, you know, on the one hand, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of information that really will help you understand. It's interesting. You can see its relevance, but it's not good sermon material, right? And mm. so it's not the kind of thing that you'd expect somebody to, to preach on. Most Sunday school teachers have not had a chance to take a university course, and so are not going to necessarily have this sort of information to hand answer questions. Of course, some Sunday school teachers don't like <laughs> the awkward questions about the, the kinds of things that get addressed by academics sometimes. But even the ones that do may not have ready answers to hand. But then there's also, you know, the the fact that a way that doesn't require you to commit to a book that is only going to seem interesting, you know, once you've gotten through a whole lot of it and, you know, it seems like a struggle to work through. And so how you present it, I think, also matters. And so I, I felt like there's a lot of hunger for this inf information, or at least if there isn't, there should be, right? If, if there isn't hunger, it's because people have not realized that there's more to learn. There's a deeper level at which to engage with the New Testament. And so I wrote it for, for people like you who have questions and want answers, who, if they're going to read these things, you know, they'll love actually getting answers, but don't want a book that's going to bore them to tears half the time as they plow through it, searching for those answers that are sort of scattered throughout it amongst other stuff that they didn't really need to be told. I got to be honest, I appreciate that because there are times where I'm like, okay, I know this book has some nuggets of wisdom that I really need for my application, especially for content that I'm trying to do, but I have to sift through so much other stuff to get there. And this book, I mean, you literally go through, each chapter starts with a different letter of the, of the alphabet, right? You start with the ABCs and beyond, that's chapter one, born in a barn, chapter two, camels, critters, and calculations, chapter three, all the way through Z, which ends with Zacchaeus, Zebedee. Zebulun and Zechariah, you know, so you go through the whole thing and it is very much like just knocking them out, you know, okay, let's talk about this. Boom. Let's talk about this. Boom. And for people like me, especially in a world that is so content and social media driven, where not everyone has time to go through three or four volumes of information to get a couple pieces that are really helpful. You've done a really good job from what I can tell, kind of condensing that to just, here's what you need to know. Here's some facts. Here's what we know, at, at, you know or what, or maybe some th things that we don't know are facts we're not sure about, right? So I think that was a really smart move on your end because it's a very accessible book. Well, thank you. you know, I, if there's one concern I have, you know, and I probably should have had two, there was a reviewer who on Amazon, I think, who was like, yeah, no, this cheesy gimmick of having you know, 26 chapters with different letters you know, didn't work for them. Uh, I'm glad that it seems to work for some people. But I do worry that some people will think it's, it's going through like all the stuff in the New Testament alphabetically, and it's kind of like a you know a dictionary, but maybe with a bit of humor in it. But really, it is just trying to pick a bunch of different either issues, questions people have, starting points, stories that seem like 
they're pretty clear, but then you actually dig into the cultural context and you realize, oh, you know, I understood it that way because you know, reading is an American, reading it in English, that's the impression I got, but actually there's, you know, and so tried to pick a bunch of different either topics or stories, possible questions, and just meander sort of as it were, right? And let people sort of, if they're going to get some of the stuff that's occasionally associated with some of that technical terminology, here's a method that scholars use, stuff like that. Find out what it's good for, right? As it's being introduced, not here's this thing that scholars do. And eventually you're like, oh, you know, if somebody had explained to me what that was good for, I might've actually found it interesting when they were telling me about it, but it didn't find out until much, much later and maybe never. So let's go through some of these. I mean, I, I think it'd be so much fun to knock out a few while we have some time with you. And one of the first ones that I read that I found really helpful was the chapter Born in a Barn, right? So you kind of go through how the typical evangelical or even Christian narrative is that Jesus was born in some kind of stable, which is some kind of barn in his cultural context, and there were animals all around, and he was placed in, in a feeding trough. Talk to us why maybe some of that could be true, but why we're kind of missing the bigger context. Yeah. So there have been a number of good articles in recent years about this topic. So it's been good to see some uh, treatment of this. And I, I have a feeling that the, like the new revised standard version update edition, we'll, we'll talk about that because, you know, it's like new revised and you know, updated, you know, it's a really bad news. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, if you call something new, you know, it, you can get yourself into trouble. I was That's pointing true. out to people just what a Google when new college in Oxford was founded. It was new then, but it's funny for a college that's that old to have that name. Anyway, but yeah, so I think they've actually incorporated this and have removed some of the words that people expect there. And it's going to cause some issues. People are going to be puzzled by it. But this whole idea that you arrive in a, a place that's not your home and you check into an inn, a hotel, right? Americans, it seems it seems natural to us, right? This is, you know, it, an inn, a probably a holiday inn, right? I do it all the time. Sign that's flashing, it says, right? It says no vacancy on it. And so then they go into the stable around the back or something like that. And yeah, I mean, my, my son had a, a, a version for children, right? Where that around the back was the repeated slogan, the innkeeper, right? All these characters that make it into the, not just the popular imagination of the story, but also how we, how we tell it to and how we hear it as children so that it becomes second nature to understand the story this way. And yet I had the opportunity to not just read some things and to uh, study in a different cultural context and grasp that cultural difference makes, and makes a real contribution to how we understand and how we misunderstand things, but also to teach students from the Middle East who you know, I could actually run some of these things I'd read in scholarly books, run it by them, things that I'd been told about the cultural context and say, how do you understand this? And they said, yeah, no, we would not show up somewhere and check into a hotel, right? You stay with distant relatives. You stay with friends of relatives, relatives of friends. You, you, there's some network whereby you make these connections and hospitality. The ends are for the people who really have no connections. And what I often tell my students is read the book of Acts, right? Paul travels a lot. How often are we told he checks into a hotel? It's like, never. And so presumably, if Jesus is placed in a feeding trough because there's no room in this place that probably refers to a guest room, right, or a spare room in the house, 
It's the same word that's translated upper room later in the gospel. It's probably in a home. So he's still relying on hospitality, but the the nasty innkeeper who you know doesn't make room for this couple is is you know ceases to be part of it. And in fact, you know, I mean, if we even if you are you know traveling with your pregnant wife and traveling on whatever the modern equivalent of a donkey would be, right? So a real budget car or something like that. I mean, if if you are actually staying at the hotel, if the if the hotel manager sort of knocked on your door and said, sorry, you know, this couple really needs to stay somewhere. And so we're going to impose on you who already checked in there, you know, you wouldn't be happy, right? So even against our background, I think the innkeeper gets a bad rap, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying like what you're telling me is that I've been hating some uh, imaginary innkeeper for a lot of years because of, of how I've understood <laughs> this story of some guy being like, sorry, pregnant person. I got no room. It's like, what a jerk that guy is. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, I mean, if you're already at the hotel and two more people show up, I mean, how are you going to feel if they like somebody comes and says, "Okay, you know, please let these complete strangers stay in your room. It's like uh, it's so I think even against our cultural background and our way of what I think is misreading it, he still gets a bad rap that he doesn't deserve. Right. I mean, if he's protecting his customers, you blame the customers for not you know hearing that there's you know, um, somebody groaning in labor or whatever you want to imagine and coming out and saying, oh, please come in, right? Because it's not the manager's job to impose on the, the, the guests who are already in there, presumably. Anyway, uh, so I think, you know, that's a fair point. You know, we could, we could do better by the innkeeper even reading it against our own culture. But the point in the chapter is that there are things that if we know them about cultures closer to the one in which Jesus lived, then we actually will understand the story in a very different way. And some of those things don't even come up. Yeah, that is, is helpful. That kind of leads to a a broader issue really, which is the birth narratives that we find in the gospels, right? And how they don't really work when you put them, when you try to intertwine them, right? Like, Like they're kind of almost in a sense, competing stories of what actually happened, presumably anyway. Can you break down some of the key differences that you find are irreconcilable and then kind of walk us through then how are we to view these these birth narratives right because again coming from an evangelical fundamentalist background if the bible isn't literally true in all means of history that it tells the bible is no longer inerrant and therefore i i have no source of, of of objective truth that's kind of how the logic goes so if these birth narratives are competing and they can't both be true at the same time then I need a different lens to look at these things through, but I don't know where to, where to go from there. So walk us through the differences that are just irreconcilable and then walk us through how we make sense of these narratives. Yeah, so there's an activity I do with students and you're, you're probably gonna get the sense, I think I'm gonna say that more than once, that teaching students, some of whom you know, have some prior knowledge, but a lot of preconceptions, others of whom don't have any knowledge and I need to really take them from square one, trying to bring them all together and keep their interest. A lot of that has informed how I've written about these subjects. But I was very tempted to include like a blank map, like two, actually two blank maps in the book and you know, a set of colored pens or pencils like to go along with it, right? So you could actually diagram this because I think that's the most helpful thing that somebody can do. But if you take Luke's narrative, right? And you start and they're in Nazareth. They go up to Bethlehem for the census. We're told that after Jesus is born, after Mary gives birth, 
They go to Jerusalem to do what the law of the Lord requires. There's sacrifice that's required. And we can look up. What's the time period, right? When are you supposed to offer that? And it's, it's less than two months afterwards. And then Luke says, after they did everything the law of the Lord required, they returned to their hometown of Nazareth. So come briefly from Nazareth. They're in Bethlehem, not even two months after Jesus is born, and then go to Jerusalem and then back to Nazareth. In Bethlehem, we get the impression that Jesus is two years old, right, roughly, because Herod the Great asks the Magi, when did this star appear? And then kills all children two years and under on that basis. They are living in a house. They flee to Egypt. They want to return to where they came from. But because they're afraid of Herod's son, who's on the throne in Judea, they make their home for the first time in Nazareth. And so these are different geographical movements, right? And this is not even getting into the relationship of the census under Quirinius to the death of Herod the Great, right? And other things that could create problems, right? Just working with the information you get within the story, these two don't fit together. And the reason that's so easy to miss is, again, the, the Christmas pageants, right? Where the Magi and the shepherds are all there at the same time. You have all the animals and everybody's having so much fun listening to the story that, you know, we, we miss out that some details in both Matthew and Luke are being left out or being smudged and smushed together. Uh, smudged and smushed, by the way, are some of those technical terms that scholars use when oh, good talking to know. about good these to subjects. Know. They are smudged yeah. and smushed. So just introduce that, <laughs> Pete, that terminology, right? Yeah. <laughs> Quote, Pete ends. <laughs> yeah, I, I love I love Pete. Uh, you know, I mean, he mostly does Old Testament stuff. I did try to channel my inner Pete ends like when writing New Testament stuff and do the same kind of thing for this, this other bit of literature. But yeah, so the, the question then becomes, what do you do with these things? Right. right. And the truth is that you know, I've come through a similar sort of background. You know, I didn't grow up steeped in it, right? I had a, a born-again experience in my teens, but you know, ended up in a conservative evangelical context for quite a lot of years. And that fostered a fair amount of my faith, but also led me to expect that problems like these, differences like these, won't be encountered. But if the, you encounter them, they are problems, right? And using that term problems actually reflects that set of assumptions. But if what you're coming from are ancient biographies, right? So not things that are, are purely mytho- mythological narratives or something like that, but ancient lives of actual people. They still often have you know, heavenly signs or stories that people have heard about their birth that highlight how important this individual as an adult was. And so this is what they must have been like as children and things like that. And so far from it being either these are things that you can't trust until you have no certainty and no reason to believe anything, or they are absolutely true without any difficulties, no problems fitting them together, no contradictions. We can treat them as like the lives of other people that we have in the ancient world, and that they're things that tell us important things about Jesus, right? And about, and that even when they're not telling us things that we would consider historical facts, they're trying using the methods appropriate for their original readers who they were writing for, here's how important this person is, right? Here's why you should, or here's Jesus compared with Moses in this narrative, or here are the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus told in a style that resembles the story of some of the the great heroes of our scriptures so that you can get how important they are and how they are part of that same tradition and things like that. And so we really, I think, you know, if we come through or 
reinforce the message of conservative evangelicalism, we actually set people up to treat what the text actually says as a problem, to be defused, right, and to be avoided, so that you spend a lot of your time defending your doctrine about the Bible from what the Bible says, when you could have just been reading it and saying, okay, this says this, this says this, I guess these aren't, this isn't historical information, and I'm not supposed to treat it as such, and getting on with your life and you know, actually not finding this thing to be a problem necessarily. Friends, it's no secret that deconstruction can lead you wondering, what now, after the dust settles? How do I make sense of God? Where do my ethics come from? What is God like? Well, I'm happy to tell you that my friends and brilliant scholars, Tom Ord and Trip Fuller, are tackling those questions at the God After Deconstruction event, February 9th through 10th at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Join me as we hear not only from them, but from other leading voices like Alexis Lilly and Catherine Keller as we dream of a better way forward in our faith and discover a God who is more loving than we could ever imagine. Tickets are on sale now, and you can get them via the link in the show notes. That's February 9th through the 10th at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Grab a ticket and let's hang out. I'll see you there. Are you saying that that these types of birth narratives that we read about with Jesus are not exclusively known to just the story of Jesus, meaning in, in the cultural context of how biographers talked about other people, are there virgin birth stories that get passed around? Are there stories similar that kind of highlight the importance by using some of these, I guess we can call them metaphors and in, in, in terms of phrases? I mean, there certainly are similar things. You know, in the, if you look at some of the Greco-Roman ones, then rather than virginal conceptions, usually it's divine conceptions. And so the, the virginal conception is essentially a, what we might say is a Jewish equivalent of that, right? A correspondent. Unfortunately, despite the emphasis on a virginal conception, I still encounter people who think that Jesus is divine on his father's side and human on his mother's side, which is not the classic Orthodox view of Jesus. Wait, right? wait, stop, stop right there. Hold on, hold on, pause, pump the brakes. I'm sorry, maybe I'm one of the fools, but I was always under the impression that like God was Jesus's father and that was the divine part of God, Jesus, yeah. and then Mary was the human part. But you're saying even in the quote-unquote orthodox sense, that's not how it, it was it was understood? Yeah, and it's a widely held view, right? But yeah, the reason it is not, you know, right? So so God as father is not, you know, it, it's, it doesn't mean in a Jewish context or what turns into a Christian context and becomes a separate tradition, what it meant in the wider Greco-Roman context where, you know, you have Zeus, right, with one of his many, you know, love interests other than his divine wife, right? And you know, Jewish authors, including the early Christians, were quite adamant that that's not the kind of view of God or of divine parentage that they have, right? And so there is in what develops, you know, and here we're going beyond the New Testament to what the creeds end up saying, what becomes orthodoxy, but Protestants, for the most part, have embraced you know, the orthodox view of Jesus, right? What the creeds say about the Trinity and other things like that. And what, what becomes orthodoxy is not divine on his father's side, human on his mother's side, but fully God mm. and fully human. So that there's an incarnation, right? And that incarnation 
eventually becomes sort of blurred with the miraculous conception. But actually, when we first encounter it in the Gospel of John, when it emphasizes that Jesus is the word become flesh, there's no infancy story, right? There's no story of a miraculous conception in there uh, because the two weren't necessarily going hand in hand, right? Initially, you have something that's much more like Jesus is like, you know, you think about Hannah, right? Who becomes the mother of Samuel, right? And a miraculous conception to somebody who's not yet of age, right? And we get that even in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so they want to say, you know, Jesus is like that, but even greater, right? And so God becomes directly involved in this way so that, you know, human father's taken out of it so that you can call this child the son of God. But there's no hint of anything like sort of divine human intercourse, right? That might lead one to take the divine father, human mother thing in the way that Greeks and Romans were perfectly comfortable talking about, but Jews did not go along with. Well, that is helpful, but I mean, I think about the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. You know, that that was kind of my my hint of like, oh, there is something happening that kind of feels, now for, with, for me as a, as a 21st century Western, a little icky, frankly, you know, like I don't know how I feel about this, like how is this supposed to work kind of idea. But you're saying what what, what the authors are getting at there is not how I'm interpreting it as like some kind of God, human, romantic thing. It's not, that. that's not how it's supposed to be taken. Is that correct? So one of the things that comes up later in my book, I'm struggling, you know, some of the letters are harder to come up with things for, you know, and so I was like, <laughs> you know, what do I do for why? It's like, but the why chromosome, you know, I think I was like, good, you know, I could talk about sexuality, but I could also ask, you know, did Jesus have divine DNA on his father's side is the kind of question that you might come up with, right? Right. And nobody in the ancient world was thinking about DNA, right? And so you can answer the question and say, well, it's implicit in these texts, or you can say, no, it's not. But either way, you are saying things that the text is not saying. The whole notion of conception with genetics and knowledge of embryology and things like that, that we have, right? Whether we're Christians or not, right? We know stuff about this process, right, uh, as a result of microscopes and medical studies, that ancient people didn't have a way of knowing. And so we ask questions that the text is never going to explicitly answer. And sometimes we actually make, make it a, a crucial part of one's faith to hold a particular view on this when we don't have the kind of information, right? Even if you're saying scriptures are inerrant and provide you know, all the necessary information, if you want to know, well, what was Jesus' DNA like, you know, and how did it really compare to everybody else's? It's not going to answer that because they're not talking in those terms. And so I think that in addition to maybe helping people not lose their faith because of, you know, historical differences between the infancy stories, this way of approaching the scriptures can also help you navigate the fact that you may need to answer questions for the benefit of your own faith that the scriptures are not going to answer explicitly. Right. And so you may say, well, I think this is compatible with the script, with what the scriptures say. I think this is an implication, but you're still going beyond it. And you may therefore hold those beliefs somewhat loosely. And holding beliefs loosely is not the, the fundamentalist approach to faith, but it actually can not only be compatible with a deep, genuine faith in God and being a follower of Jesus, but it actually takes away from us, robs us of the idol that we sometimes try to turn the Bible into because we want that absolute certainty that as human beings, we really should acknowledge is something that only God can rightly say to have, claim to have. 
Yeah. Okay. Helpful. Let's get back to the virgin birth narratives for a minute. So I, I wanted to pull. I wanted to pull one, one more thread. Then we're going to move on to some other topics here. While I have you. So obviously, it is considered very orthodox Christianity according to the creeds that you know we believe in the virgin birth, right? And when I think about belief, I think about okay. What I'm saying is that I affirmed that it literally happened that Mary was a virgin and then mysteriously, miraculously. She conceived that in that gave birth to Jesus. Two things or two hiccups seem to come up. One, it seems like based on what you're saying, that 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 those stories might not be intended to be taken as literally as I think they should be taken, based on just what you said earlier about metaphor and how this is part of the cultural context of of, of trying to communicate this person's really important. Pay attention. But also, even if that's the case. It seems like I would still be going against what is considered pretty orthodox creeds that almost everyone, including evangelicals, would say they're pretty key for you to be a Christian to affirm. So help me navigate those two what seem like competing tensions of, well, you know, on one hand, right, us evangelicals, us Protestants, the Bible, sola scriptura, right? So if the Bible, as we are understanding it more and more, is pointing to potentially this virgin birth narrative that, again, competes, there's two of them, being more about the symbolism of Jesus being exalted and being the son of God, and here's how we communicate that. It wouldn't really matter what the creeds say for a Protestant because the Bible trumps everything. At the same time, in this cultural moment, dropping the creed is a quick way to be like, are you a real Christian? I get this all the time online. Well, Tim, do you affirm, do you affirm a physical resurrection? Yes, guys, I do affirm it. You know, do you affirm the virgin birth? Yes, I affirm it. I'm a Christian. So how do you understand what I'm saying? Like walk me through that, that, that tightrope. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, there have been times when, you know, Catholic scholars have been much more open to wrestling with some of the historical questions than evangelical Protestant scholars, because like you look at somebody like Raymond Brown, right? You know, fantastic New Testament scholar, you know, Catholic priest as well as a scholar. And he would wrestle with stuff and be quite honest about stuff and could say, you know, because I, this is not determined by the Bible. You know, if you're a Protestant, sorry, you know, you've going to, you know, you may find this difficult, but you know, it's the authority of the church has settled this for me. And so, you know, I can be honest that, you know, the Bible doesn't say what the church eventually came down oh, and said, I see. You know. Uh, which is an interesting you know, angle on things. Uh, so I think you can learn a lot by looking at you know, who says what and who it's like, you know, oh, I feel the need to you know, find this in the Bible because you know, if I can't find it in the Bible, then I don't feel like I have a basis for it. I think what I would say is that you know, on the one hand, if you want as much certainty as you can legitimately get and you realize that the Bible is not going to give you, you know, if, it, if it has these factual historical issues of fitting stuff together, then trying to say, but when it says that there was this miraculous conception, Matthew and Luke, there they agree. And so we can just take that and ignore the other problems. It's probably not going to be entirely satisfying, right? But ultimately, I think, you know, what I would want to say is on the one hand, you know, this this affirmed something really important for, you know, ancient people, you know, to depict Jesus in these terms, right? He's at least as great as, and we can argue greater than uh, these various other figures in connection with whose birth and for whose birth there were very important, but they were much less impressive than what we have in the case of Jesus. But you know, it, it said something to them that actually you know becomes challenging for 
contemporaries and can create a hurdle. But then what some, particularly Protestants, I think, have tended to do is to make that the focus of, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? You affirm these doctrines that modern people find it difficult to affirm. And I think that that's actually, you know, I mean, is that hard? You know, because, you know, basically, basically you're setting yourself up potentially for ridicule. Sure. You know, maybe it's hard, but I would argue it's easier than trying to consistently love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies and to do the things that Jesus taught, right? Which are what are what's supposed to characterize his followers. We c- can look at the various New Testament authors and see that some of them at least don't mention a virginal conception, right? And Paul says, you know, of the seed of David according to the flesh, which, you know, seed sounds like, you know, on the male side. And so he doesn't, you know, maybe have an awareness of this. That's not what's important for him, right? And so if you can be a Christian without proclaiming this, without include, mentioning it in your letters, can present Christianity as Mark does without mentioning this, then maybe the stuff that is actually emphasized in there is what we should be focused on as identifying Christians. And so, you know, do you believe this? You know, are you a real Christian or not? You know, nobody's, I mean, did anyone ever, did any one of those people ever say, you know, do you love your enemies? Are you a real Christian or not? Or is it, do you affirm this stuff, right? And so I think that, you know, there are all kinds of things that we have substituted to be the identity markers because we can boast of doing those things in a way that actually the teaching of the New Testament would say we should not be boasting instead of focusing on the things that the New Testament is pretty consistent about ought to characterize Christians. And that's why I think this is not just interesting historical stuff. I think it's theologically important as well. Yeah, that's really helpful. Again, I think a lot of people are in this space where we're renegotiating our faith. We're trying to make sense of the Bible in in hopefully a more honest and in 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 intellectual way. Meaning, we're trying to take the Bible more on its own terms and trying to understand this is the Bible we have, whether we like it or not. And there are things in here that do rub, rub up rub up against our sensibilities as as modern Westerners, right? And also try not not to go to the other extreme of like, well, this is just a book of fairy tales and it's not important and these, you know, who gives a crap kind of vibe. Because I, I think a lot of us still find the Bible somewhere in our life and find it important in some kind of way, but we're trying to navigate what that means for us, right? And that brings me to a very important question. And I, I'm not sure if you address this in your book. I'm sure you do. And I, I, I don't want to go through all of your book, obviously. I, I want folks to buy the book and read it. But one of the questions I've always had, this is just me asking now personally, salvation, this idea of being saved, right? Jesus says narrow is the way that leads to uh, life and you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Only those who, only I'm, I'm the only way to the Father, you know, those kinds of things. And I was just taught that that those kinds of passages in the term salvation was relating to not going to hell when you die. That was like the primary mechanism that we're trying to avoid here, right? God, Jesus saves us from the depths of hell so one day we can spend all of eternity in heaven with him. How is the New Testament talking about salvation? And when Jesus makes these claims that some apologists would say are, are exclusivity claims, Jesus is claiming that he's the only way to eternal life, really the only way to be saved in the evangelical sense. Is that is that is that right? Is that what he's saying? What's the context there? Break down those two things for me. 
Yeah. Uh, so we could have a we could have a whole podcast probably just on you know sort of salvation in the New Testament. Oh, and I hear a part two coming. Really then I'll to get you back on. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm open to that. You know, I'm enjoying this conversation. Would be uh, more than happy to continue it. Um, uh, yeah, 26 installments right later. And we're still like having <laughs> managed to get to everything right. But I mean, in short, you know, just like we saw, there's diversity in terms of some of the details in the infancy stories. We don't get the same impression from all of the New Testament authors. And I think by the time I get around to talking about the letter of James, uh, students have gotten the sense that I'm open to diversity and sort of expecting me to say, yeah, James and Paul just disagree. But I actually think that they were much more on the same page than not just than the text might imply, but then probably the authors behind them might have realized because I think each of them was addressing you know, at least somewhat different issues, but they were using overlapping terminology. And so I think one of the things we can learn from looking at what Paul says about faith and works and salvation and what James talks about saving faith, that without works, faith is dead, is the importance of not just asking, you know, what does this word mean, right? What are the possible meanings of this word? But how does this author use this word? When I'm talking with my students, the way I put it is, you know, never, ever, you know, if your professor asks you about, you know, what does Paul mean by works of the law? Uh, start with Webster's Dictionary defines works as, right? Just Not just because it's a trite you know, thing that like, you become the stereotypical way of answering questions, but because they're not asking about the dictionary definition, right? They're asking about the, you know, maybe the lexical Greek definition, but then how is this author using it, right? What do they mean by it? And Paul's focus was on, Salvation not being something that comes through works of the law, meaning the works of Torah, right? The things that have become distinctive boundary markers of the Jewish people, right? So he always focuses on circumcision, right? On uh, food laws, on things of that sort. And so he is emphasizing in a way that I think relates directly to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, to treating things as kind of easy boundary markers, right? We're the people of God because we affirm this or we don't do that or we have this characteristic. Whereas you could neglect the weightier matters of the law, right? That's Jesus's debate with the Pharisees. It's like, you know, you stand out from others because you go to this degree of, you know, strictness when it comes to tithing and things like that. And that's impressive, right? You know, by all means, but you're missing stuff, right? The problem is not that you're tithing, cared about tithing or care about people not working on the Sabbath. The point is that you're missing what's supposed to be even more important. And I think that was Paul's message, right? He was saying that if God will condemn Gentiles because they are uncircumcised and will let Gen- Jewish people who are basically doing worse things than those Gentiles are off the hook because they are part of the right people group, then God is unjust, right? And that makes God you know, biased in a way that actually goes against the teachings of Judaism. And what I, I think I do point out in the book, I can't remember if I actually get to this point, is that ironically, right, Protestantism has taken up this, you know, by faith, not by works. And yet oftentimes it's like, well, we affirm these things that everybody else denies. And so, you know, even if we commit all the other sins that everybody else says, we're going to heaven, whereas they can, you know, they deny these things, but might be better people than we are, and they're going to hell, right? And right. I think we've actually ended up with the opposite of the message that Paul had when we actually pay attention to what he's saying, what it would have meant in that context, what kinds of works is he talking about? And so I think that 
Paul and James would have agreed that, you know, there are, you know, there's a way of living that matters, right? And that how we live matters. And that faith in the sense of trusting God is, is crucial. And that I think the disagreement comes across because, you know, James is talking about, you know, can faith just like belief that God exists save you, right? And he says, you know, demons believe God exists, right? They know, right? You, you may just believe, but they know. And it doesn't do them any good because of the kinds of beings that they are, right? And I don't think Paul would have necessarily disagreed with that if it was sort of expounded in that way. But they were using these terms of faith and works focused on different things. And so we get the sense that there's this disagreement and they might have disagreed, but I don't think as, I think we can still find some commonality between them in ways that I think people sometimes don't expect because I, I talk a lot about the disagreements and the differences. My name is Joseph Yu, and I am an Episcopalian priest, and I fully believe in what Project Amplify is trying to do, which is to amplify voices and theology, to offer a counter-narrative to the voices and platforms that uses the Bible as a leverage to marginalize, to exclude, and to dehumanize. Project Amplify wants to amplify voices and theology to talk about the love and justice of God and just how diverse and how inclusive our God is and the gospel is. So if you want to help provide a different narrative of what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Christ, please click the link below to donate. Thank you. But when we're talking about salvation, are we talking about like some afterlife type of view where, where Paul's like, listen, you know, because, you know, one of the critiques I, I hear often about people who might not accept eternal conscious torment as the afterlife, they'll say, well, Paul never talks about hell, right? Okay, fair. Mm-hmm. So like, so what are we talking about here? Like, what is this whole, maybe these are too broad and, and maybe for you, you're like, listen, it's just too nuanced to get into for one podcast and that's fair. But from a 30,000 foot view, when we talk about terms like being saved or salvation, and, you know, the grace of God is a gift, et cetera, all those things. What are we actually getting towards? Is this about, oh, when I die, I go to the good place, not the bad place? Is it about how we live rightly here on earth? Is it about the hope that one day God will reconcile the cosmos and make the crooked straight? What are, what are these authors actually trying to get at when it comes to these, these, this kind of language that for many of us means don't go to hell, go to heaven? I think that, you know, there are ways of, Talking about it, and you know, the thirty thousand feet view, I'd say, is spending eternity with God. I think that just like trying to answer questions about Jesus' DNA, asking you know what would that be like, and how do we envisage that, it gets into all kinds of difficulties because we have information about the the brain that impacts how we think about the mind. Uh, We might be less inclined to envisage you know just a a purely disembodied afterlife, but and then on the other hand, there are people who will happily say, "I'm going to go to heaven when I die," and that's their understanding of what it means to be a Christian and their hope of the afterlife. And yet Paul's focus was on, you know, in particular was on resurrection, right? That God would raise people from the dead because didn't view disembodied existence as full-fledged human existence, right? It was God, that was not how God created us. And so we'll be transformed, but it's not just something ethereal in that way. I think that there is a definite risk of, taking a negative view of creation and of material existence that the church actually historically condemned, even though in practice its doctrines didn't always send that message, get that message home to people. But I think that however we articulate it for our time, it's going to 
require that we answer questions that you know Paul and the other New Testament authors don't answer. Yeah. And so I, you know, the, the question of how does, you know, if it's going to be eternal, unending existence rather than some kind of timeless existence or something like that, then do are our memories going to keep expanding to have room for all the new memories? Do we ever forget stuff in order to, you know, and as a sci-fi fan, you know, I've, I've read a lot of what, watched a lot of stuff that also explores this in interesting <laughs> ways. I think, you know, ultimately, you know, my view is that we should, you know, leave some of those things in God's hands, right? Mm. I mean, imagery of streets of gold and pearly gates that you get in Revelation, I don't think are intended to tell us, okay, literally, you know, it's like, you know, the, the one thing you should make sure you have in the afterlife is, you know, good gold polish or something like that. You know, I don't think that's the point, right? right. It's to say it's going to be a wondrous existence. Yeah. Hmm. That's how, I mean, listen, I, I've interviewed a lot of biblical scholars now, and I, I hear a common thread. Essentially, what I hear is, it's complicated, and we don't know a whole lot about this kind of stuff sometimes, you know, regarding like 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 some of these more detailed questions. And I actually appreciate that because I think it's so important for the audience to understand that theology and, and this world, it is, I mean, scholars argue with each other. They see things differently. They have different perspectives on the same text. It's complicated, folks. Like this stuff, you know, I'm asking James very blunt, direct questions intentionally, because what he's telling us a lot, I think in his own way is like, well, there are some themes that we can think about, but when it gets into the, like the nitty gritty, it gets pretty complicated, you know, and there's not a whole lot that we always know about how they thought about X or Y uh, issue, which I really appreciate. And that brings me to my last question. All right. My last question for this interview, I might reach out to you, James, and have you do one of our Theology 101 classes because I think you have so much to offer them. It'd be so great. We can go through your book and everything. But my last question is, let's talk about sexuality. Let's talk about human sexuality in the New Testament. Obviously, people, especially more progressive Christians, want to know, what does the Bible really say about homosexuality or queer inclusion, et cetera? And I, at this point, have read a decent perspective of thoughts. Okay, I've read everything from, hey, the word homosexuality actually was never in the Bible until 1946. That's my good friend Rocky. He has a great documentary on that. I, I loved it. I thought it was very compelling. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Bird has a book called The Bible and Sexuality. What do the texts say? We've had great conversations about, you know, the word husband and wife aren't really in the text. It's man and woman that get translated into those categories. I've heard people say, well, the 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 quote unquote same sex relationships that Paul's talking about aren't really about monogamous, loving relationships. And then I've also heard people say, listen, the biblical authors just don't have categories for human sexuality like how we do, because we're thinking about it in a very Freudian kind of way. All fair points. I'm curious for you, you know, your perspective on how you understand some of the big cultural questions we're asking today, especially for the church, and how they relate to the New Testament and what the texts have to say, if anything, about these topics. Yeah. So I, I think answering this more broadly, you know, I, I may want to actually venture just a little bit outside of the New Testament at one point, but let's start Great. there. Right? It's all you. In, yeah. In, in the era that we're talking about in terms of the New Testament, Greek culture was, you know, I mean, has been described as essentially a sort of a bisexual culture, right? So in a way that differentiated the Greeks from others, they were uh, fully on board with in particular, men having sex with other men right, as part of their culture. It was esteemed, right? There's, you know, erotic poetry. It was expected almost, right? But it was, you know, something that we 
would immediately be uncomfortable with. And many people, you know, whether they are, you know, straight, gay, whatever they are today would be uncomfortable with, which is often, you know, either a man with his sleeves, man, an older man with a, a young man, things like that. And it was never about marriage because marriage had a clearly defined understanding, which was usually the one woman, but occasionally more than one woman that you married in order to produce legitimate heirs. And so if my students are shocked by something related to sexuality, it's less the things that I might dare to say about, you know, same-sex relationships and what is and isn't said and how the cultural context then was different than the fact that when it talks about marriage and talks about adultery and talks about sex, there's this gender inequity, right? That shows that biblical marriage is not the monogamous one man, one woman thing, right? At least through most of biblical history, that is what most people in the United States and in the English speaking world are talking about if they use the phrase biblical marriage, right? A woman who is sleeps with anyone other than her husband is committing adultery. A man who sleeps with another woman, if that woman is not somebody else's wife, is not committing adultery, right? In that mm. context. Either that's a concubine, right? Could become his second wife, right? And so in this context, there's this gender inequity, even in the heterosexual practice of marriage, in heterosexual sexual relationships and things like that. And to the extent that male-male relationships were viewed as something negative by some Roman philosophers, as well as by many Jewish thinkers, it was precisely because of that gender inequity that was part of the culture and of their framework, right? It was thought that, you know, one reason why you didn't tend to, even in Greek culture, have same-sex relationships between people of the same age and social class was because one of them was taking on the female role, the passive role. And so it was sort of demeaning for them, right, as a male, right, the superior sex, to be in this passive role that was female according to their understanding of the nature of men and women. And so what I often say is that if you don't accept that framework of thinking about men and women, and of course there are certainly some people who do. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. (laughs) Including evangelicals, including, you know, relatively conservative Christians, but who actually think that God created men and women equal. And that, you know, when there are power imbalances culturally, it reflects the curse, right? In Genesis rather than, you know, the way God intended things to be, that in Christ there's neither male nor female, indicates not that we are the same, but that we are equal, right? And in ways that have implications for marriage and for involvement in ministry and for other things. Genesis, I think, is crucial to bring in, you know, and that's all I'd say is that, you know, often people will point out and say, well, you know, the biblical principle is God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right, is the way that people sometimes put it and that sort of thing. And if you're going to tell a story about the first human being, you know, you've got to start with a man and woman. Otherwise, the story is not going to have, you know, a sequel, right? And so it doesn't seem like that's the the main point there. Uh, And in fact, Genesis 1 is ambiguous about how many males and females and how many human beings God created. But once you get to the Adam and Eve story, the, the thing that is the key principle there is it's not good for the human being to be alone. And many people's view of, same-sex relationships is it's like, okay, we don't condemn people for experiencing the attraction because we realize that there are, you know, there, there may be cultural and upbringing components, but there's a genetic component, how you respond to pheromones, other things. So just stay celibate and it's all okay. And they're saying it's good for those people to be alone. 
right? Whereas Paul's teaching on celibacy is that some people have this calling, but for most people, that's not the expectation, right? And so there are actually biblical principles that one can appeal to to argue the other way. And I think that's the thing I often try to point out is that one of the things, one of the disservices that fundamentalism does in trying to, you know, turning any hint of contradiction into a problem, right? It's, it makes people lose their faith when they encounter the historical difficulties, but it also makes people have the wrong impression that everybody is on the same page when it comes to everything related to how to, how to live out this faith, right? They have a shared faith, but they don't always agree on what the implications are for this or that scenario. And when we realize that, you know, it's, it's terrifying sometimes because it puts some responsibility on us, but that's okay, right? That we actually have to do the same thing that all these people going back to the very beginning had to do, which is to wrestle with these things. If Peter and Paul could argue and disagree about what the right thing to do was in terms of how to uh, include Gentiles in this new movement, as we see, you know, Paul mentions it in Galatians, if they can disagree and have to figure some of this stuff out, then to think that they did so in a way that ultimately lets us off the hook from wrestling with things is to shirk a responsibility that I think the Bible places firmly on our shoulders. That's great. Last follow-up to this, and then I'm going to let you go. And I, again, James, thank you for your time and for spending so much time. Friends, the book is The A to Z of the New Testament, Things Experts Know That Everyone Else Should Too. It's out now, published by Erdman's, which I'm, getting, I'm also being published through. So props to you. They're a great publisher to work with. And friends, this book is really really good. It's like this conversation on steroids. It is talking about all kinds of topics that I'm sure you are so curious about. So pick up the book today. Last follow-up, you made this statement that, you know, gender differences is a huge, gender inferiority between men and women is a huge theme throughout the world that, that, that the Bible, you know, inhabits. And I know for a fact, and I pulled it up just to prove it, I know that people who are even complementarians will say, whoa, 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 Tim, but the Bible is clear. It's about mutual submission, not just men, not just women submitting to men. And of course, you know, Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 21, 22, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's, that's one of the proof texts that's often used to prove that therefore it's about mutual submission. Is your response to that like, well, listen, this could be what Paul thought, but other people in the Bible don't think that? Is, is, are we misinterpreting the text? Give us your, your, your final thought on that. Yeah, and there does seem to be some diversity potentially. But one thing I'll, I'll maybe just the main point to emphasize is that you know, if you start with one text, you can then say, well, and the Bible, you have to interpret scripture in light of scripture. Therefore, these other texts can't possibly mean what they seem to because we know this thing that we started with. And if right. you started with the other texts and did the reverse, you could you know, reach the exact opposite conclusion, right? Mm. And so if you start with texts about submission, then you know, those are in there. And then you can say, well, so Phoebe, you know, who seems to be delivering Paul's letter to the Romans and a deacon of the church in Cancrea, and so a, a Christian leader and all these women that Paul greets in Romans seem to have been involved in ministry with him. But we know that can't be the case because this other text that, you know, if you started with what Paul says in Romans, and a lot of people miss those greetings in Romans 16 because it's not the most famous and most um, engaging part of the text, but there's a lot of important stuff in there. And so I, I think there too that you know, the way that some people handle differences between texts 
attempting to flatten them to neutralize one by emphasizing the other, maybe occasionally throwing up hands in mystery, but still saying, this one I'm going to treat as clear, and therefore this one can't possibly mean that thing. You could start with the others and do the opposite and have the opposite effect. And I think that's an important point to emphasize. But yeah, we could do a whole thing just on, you know, sort of, you know, Phoebe and various Marys and all these other folks that are uh, mentioned in the New Testament that I think do, that play a, a really important role. I love that. Well, James, it was great having you on. I really appreciated your expertise and wisdom here. I know it's going to be a very helpful conversation for a lot of people. Do you have a public presence? Or are you online? Any social medias that you want to plug? Yeah, so I am online, and you can find me almost everywhere as religion prof. And if you type it in as one word, put it with all of my name, it'll take you straight to my blog, and then probably you'll also get Twitter, and you know, I'm on Facebook and other places. And I hope it's clear from the book, as well as this conversation, that I care about people understanding the New Testament, right? I mean, it means something important to me in terms of my own faith, as well as in terms of my academic uh, work that I do. And I don't treat those two things as completely separate. And so I'm, I'm eager to get people's questions answered. And so if people have questions, they may find that I've already written, written some blog posts on it. But if not, you know, ask me a question. If it's something that I think it's in my area and I can answer, I will try and do so. So by all means, connect with me as religion prof in various places online. Love it so much. Friends, again, the book, The A to Z of the New Testament, Things Experts Know That Everyone Else Should Too. The book is available everywhere. Pick it up on Amazon, wherever you get your books. And James, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much for your time. Already looking forward to it. So great talking to you, Tim. Thanks a lot.